Hello everyone and welcome to the Wilds Cast. Today's episode is a rebroadcast of a lunch and learn that Rabbi Wilds gave on Facebook Live. Today's topic is failing forward, the uniquely Jewish perspective on how we grow as people and how to get back up when we fail. Rabbi Wilds begins the class by talking about how he failed the bar exam more than once. So without further ado, here's Rabbi Wilds. big family uh, of lawyers, some of you know. Um, my dad and uh, has been practicing law, that's his old joke. He's been practicing law for so many years, when is he gonna get it right? Uh, my dad's been an immigration lawyer for over 50 years. Um, and there's my cousin Rhonda, who can attest to her, her uncle, my dad, <laughs> Uh, practicing law for many, many years. And not only my father, but of course my brother and my sister-in-law, they met in law school. And um, all my cousins, actually. Rhonda's got a brother, Perry, in the Holy Land, my dear cousin Perry, who uh, my son Ezra keeps reminding me of. It's Rhonda, I cannot tell you. Just, it keeps moving on. He's, he's just Perry. Um, and, uh, and Perry's a lawyer, and my cousin Maury's a lawyer, lots of lawyers in the family. And this is a long time ago. Uh, I went to law school, it was sort of like expected. And I remember um, taking the bar, and I remember getting that letter in the mail. I was heavily distracted when I studied for the bar, I will say that. I was in rabbinical school, and I was involved with Soviet Jewry, and I got the letter, and I will never forget. Yes, I mentioned Maury. <laughs> I got the letter, and uh, I remember opening up that letter and seeing that I failed. I failed the bar. First wilds to fail the bar. And uh, I had this huge pit in the bottom of my stomach and I was so embarrassed, I didn't want anyone to know. But I wasn't deterred. I signed up for another bar review course. I studied again. I took the test a second time. I was a little more focused this time, but not much more. I got the results back again, and guess what? I failed twice. I failed the bar twice. A wild failed the bar. I was humiliated, and I felt like a total loser <laughs> and a total failure. And there was no way I was going to take that test again. I honestly was very uh, conflicted as to what I wanted to do. I was already in rabbinical school, and I, I was also uh, halfway through a master's program in international affairs, and I was really more interested in that. And I was just so embarrassed, and it was such a bad experience. And I wanted to start my Lunch and Learn today by sharing one of my failures in life. You'll see it has a good ending in the ending. I took it again, I became a lawyer. But I felt in that moment after failure one and failure two that I wasn't going to take it again. And I was just going to leave it. I was going to walk away from it. And you should just know that fear of failure is a major impediment to people of all ages um, from reaching their life goals and dreams. And I hear it every day from men and women how fear of failure is a major factor preventing them from 
pursuing their most important goals in life. It could be small goals, like staying on a diet. It could be a student in school trying to tackle the next uh, skill set in their English or math test. It could be a millennial trying to tackle their next project at work. Pursuing an important relationship, like a significant other relationship. Fear of failure is a major preventative in people reaching their dreams and accomplishing their goals in life. And today, this fear of failure is affecting younger people more than ever before. There was a, a, a study that was reported upon um, in the Wall Street Journal a couple of years ago that concluded that startup companies by people in their 20s were at a low, an all-time low in like 25 years. That it was down from 10% in 1989 to 3% in 2013, which means that the number of startup companies initiated by people in their 20s dropped from 10% in 1989 to 3% in 2013, which means that the population which is the most suited to taking risks, right? Young, healthy 20s, unaccountable to spouses and mortgages and they don't have children, they are today amongst the lowest risk takers in the United States. The largest growing group of entrepreneurs in America today, believe it or not, are people 50 and up, people my age and up. But overcoming fear is not just an economic issue. It's about the best of the human spirit. It's about our relationship really with God. And I've been privileged to witness people overcome fear and failure and adversity with great persistence. I wanna share actually a story. My cousin Rhonda's is watching this. She knows the gentleman. It's an old buddy of mine, David Keene. You remember David from uh, Long Beach? And David uh, and I went to camp together and um, after high school, we went off to study in Israel for our gap year, a long time ago. And I went to a certain yeshiva, it was called Hakotel, and he went to Another yeshiva, Shalavim, where um, my son Ezra uh, was there last year and the year before. And we used to meet on Ben Yehuda. Rhonda, remember Ben Yehuda, Saturday nights. <laughs> and David would come and we would talk. And he started sharing with me that he had, these, he had these real problems with his eyesight. First, he was telling me he was having difficulty reading the fine commentaries around the Talmud, like Rashi and Tosfos on, the, on both sides of the Talmud. And then he had a problem reading the text itself. And by the end of the year, David had gone almost completely blind. We came back to New York City together. We went to college. We were both in Yeshiva University. And to be honest, I wondered how he would make it, how he would be able to graduate college, you know, not being able to see, how he would take tests, how he would date girls and have a basically normal life. Fast forward, David not only finished college, he was accepted to rabbinical school, and together we became rabbis. And I used to see him sitting in the Beit Midrash, in the study hall up at YU until one, two in the morning, listening to those audio tapes. Rabbi Willig, you should be well. It's amazing, he used to make him these audio tapes so he could follow what was going on in, in, in class. He must have listened to hundreds of tapes and taken dozens of oral exams to make it through college, to make it through rabbinical school, and even got a master's in social work and went on 
to become a chaplain, where he still is today, a chaplain in the New York City hospital system, giving aid and support to others. David met an incredible woman, got married, and Blia and Harley have a good number of children. Uh, one of his sons is in MTA in high school with one of my sons. But there were many times when things were not working out for David. <clears throat> when his studies and his social life were just moving so, so slowly. And it felt like he was failing. And he just wanted to quit. We used to have these conversations. Simple tasks that he used to take for granted became these huge chores, let alone getting through college, rabbinical school, and social work school. But he never gave up. He just would plug away. And I used to bring people into the Beit Midrash just to, sh to at like 12 o'clock, one in the morning. You got to see this, guys. And just used to see him in the corner with a headset. It was like the time of Walkmans and he used to listen to all these classes. And the sight of him working so hard to overcome his obstacles was just so inspiring. And as I say today, David has a beautiful family and is a chaplain in the New York City hospital system. And what he does with his life now is give aid and encouragement to other people struggling with their challenges. He had so many reasons to give up, to succumb to the failure that he was already experiencing, but he just pushed through it and he just kept going until he got it right. Rabbi Yitzchak Hutner, one of the great rabbinic figures of the 20th century taught that growth comes from struggle and that we become bigger when we fall. The Talmud actually tells us that there were four people who died without ever sinning. Now, if I asked you, and even people who are extremely well acquainted with Jewish tradition, give me the names of those four people who died without ever sinning. They probably wouldn't know the answer because they never became well known because they were never considered art tzaddikim. The test of a tzaddik of a righteous person is how they overcome adversity, how they rise from the ashes. And the question, therefore, is what kind of wisdom does Judaism offer us to help us overcome our fear of failure? What gets you, after you fail once, like I did, and fail twice, like I did, to take that test again? What enables a David Keene, as he's going blind, to push through college in graduate school, and rabbinical school. What gives us the motivation to be able to do this? And one of the very opening verses of the Torah tells us, It's a very famous verse in the Torah, and it was evening, and it was morning, day one. That's how we know, by the way, that the Jewish day starts at night. The Torah starts with the evening, it was the evening, it was the day, Yom Echad, the first day. And all the rabbis asked the same question, why the extra letter Vav? Vav means and. And it was evening and morning, day one. What do you mean, and it was evening? And always implies something came before. What came before? This is the first day of creation. There was nothing by definition before the first day of creation. This was it. This was the beginning. Bereshit bara lukim. In the beginning, God created the heavens. And the Medrash tells us, The Medrash tells us that God created many worlds and he destroyed them. What does that mean, God created many worlds and he destroyed them? Until, eventually, 
he created the world in which we live today. It's a very, very strange idea. God has to keep creating and destroying because he doesn't like, right? You assume that if God ever wrote, he, he would write with a pencil without an eraser. God doesn't make mistakes. That's our definition of God. He's perfect. But Hashem is teaching us. The Medrash is teaching us that the, the world in which we live is not the first one which ever existed and that the Almighty created many worlds, hundreds, before he created the world in which we live today. Why? Because God couldn't have gotten it right on the first try. Of course he could have. But by creating and destroying, creating and destroying, God is imparting a very powerful message to us, and that is to not give up when something doesn't come out the right way the first, second, or even the tenth time. Thomas Edison very famous story, was once asked by a reporter, who's a great inventor, Edison, how it felt to fail so many times when he was inventing the alkaline battery. And he famously answered, I love this answer, he said, I never failed once. I just found the 9,000 ways that won't work. And like the Midrash, this comment helps us frame failure as a necessary prerequisite to success. And this, by the way, is why Famous psychologist Carol Dweck, any educators on here know who Carol Dweck is, and her researchers from Columbia concluded after studying 400 fifth grade children that it's easier, it's better for teachers and parents to praise kids for efforts and not smarts. The research shows that kids praised for their efforts persevered and scored higher after they failed in contrast to children praised for their smarts who in the same situation scored lower and were quicker to give up. Because we have to teach our children that success in life is not about avoiding failure. It's about putting in the effort and pushing through failure. And perhaps the greatest example, my favorite example, is Abraham Lincoln. Last night, um, I don't know how it came up, but last night we were talking about the great, probably best statesman who ever lived in this country, who led this country through the perhaps most difficult period of history, the Civil War. How many of us are familiar with how many failures Abraham Lincoln experienced before he became the 16th president of the United States? Listen to this. And by the way, I checked it all out. It's 100% true, it's in my book. At the age of nine, Lincoln's mother died, which was a very special hardship for a struggling farm family. And Lincoln later lost his modest job in 1831. And in 1833, two years later, he tried another business, which failed. He was defeated for the state legislature in 1832. His fiancee dies in 1835. In 1836, Abraham Lincoln suffers a nervous breakdown. How many of you, be, how many of you know that he had a nervous breakdown? In 1843, he failed to achieve his party's nomination. And in 1849, he sought the federal position of land officer, and he lost. He withdrew from the Senate race in 1855 because he didn't have the requisite majority votes, and in 1858, he failed to win again a seat in the Senate. Until finally, in 1860, Abraham Lincoln was elected the 16th president of the United States. Persistence, despite failure, is the only way to achieve success. And I wouldn't just say it's you have to just keep pushing until you get it. I think, and a lot of historians will agree, and I'm not a historian, but that Abraham Lincoln 
had the fortitude, the ability to carry this country through the Civil War, through the darkest period of, of American history, because of all the failures that he experienced, and because he was able to weather those storms, he developed himself. He, it was like almost like he built himself up in such a way. The great Hasidic master, Reb Levi Barditchev, taught that one of the things that an adult can learn from a baby. Such a powerful lesson. What can an adult learn from a baby? That no matter how many times you see that baby fall, they always get up. Somehow the baby naturally intuits. You would think after a while, just keep sitting down, it keeps getting up, falling down, it's cute to watch. But the baby somehow knows intuitively that it needs to keep getting up every time it falls in order to eventually walk. And what I'm arguing here is that falling or failing is the way that we humans grow and develop. That's how we build, by failing. And therefore we can't be afraid of failing because if we're afraid of failing, then you're never gonna take that shot. I told my kids this when I was trying to help them on the basketball court, not that I'm so unbelievable, but if you don't take the shot, you don't take the risk, you can't get a, 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 a point for your team. Some kids have a lot of confidence that just shoot it all the time, maybe too much confidence. My kids didn't have a lot. And I had to encourage them, when you get the ball and you think you have the shot, even if it's not perfect and everything isn't aligned perfectly, take the shot. You gotta take the shot. And if you don't set yourself up for failure, you're never gonna achieve anything in life. Now, I think I haven't said anything new. I think we all know this. And the question therefore is, if failing is something you have to go through to eventually succeed, and if so many people that we admire failed, right? And I try to make everyone feel better by starting this talk off with my failures. And why does it make us feel so bad about ourselves? We feel so awful when we fail. In my personal situation, why did I have that terrible pit in my stomach when I learned that I failed the bar? I mean, if I knew that this is part of the process of becoming a great attorney one day, then I'm just gonna like brush it off and move on. Why are we so embarrassed by our failures? And I think the answer to this question is something that we may not realize we're influenced by in our society, but I do think it influences us. And it's a certain idea, which believe it or not comes from Christianity, not Judaism, but sometimes gets wrapped up in Jewish thoughts, or at least we think it's a Jewish idea, and it's the farthest thing from Judaism. And to answer this, to, to explain what I'm talking about, I need to take you back to the very beginning, to the Garden of Eden. Everyone's familiar with the story. Adam and Eve are placed in this perfect Garden of Eden. And God tells them you can enjoy any of the fruit from the trees except the Eitz Hadat, except from the tree of life. And of course, that's what they eat from and they sin. That sin, according to Christianity, so tainted man. It so uh, corrupted mankind's personality that mankind in general, as a collective, not just Adam and Eve, but all people now, become incapable, according to Christian doctrine, of saving themselves, of redeeming themselves. This is called original sin. It's the famous Catholic doctrine of original sin. And now, because of original sin, people are incapable of saving themselves. They've literally just lost anything that's good, that, that could do it yourself, and therefore you now have to place your faith in some other being 
that doesn't make mistakes. That's perfect. Of course, is Jesus. This is Christianity 101. Now, Judaism believes in original sin. That story is from the Old Testament, from Hebrew Scripture, the Torah, our Bible. And we, that's our story. But we don't believe that that sin that Adam committed had that effect. We believe it did have an effect, but a different kind of effect. According to the Kabbalists, Adam and Eve were on a very, very high level before they sinned. They were almost like angels. And there was evil in the world, but it wasn't within man. Adam and Eve basically had the Yetzer Tov, the good inclination. And there was bad, there was evil, but it was external to man. This is before the sin, the Kabbalists teach. Represented in the serpent or maybe in the fruit that they weren't supposed to eat. And then what happened, according to Kabbalah, according to Judaism, when Adam and Eve ate what God said they weren't supposed to eat, when they disobeyed God, they brought that evil from the luring of the snake or the, or the uh, fruit itself, they ate it, they internalized the bad. And now, post the sin, Adam and Eve have both the Yetzer Tov and the Yetzer Hara. They have the good inclination, which they had before they sinned, but now after the sin, they have the evil inclination. However, that evil inclination is something we believe we can prevail over. And we don't have to place our faith in someone else to do that. Judaism believes that you and I have the capacity to prevail over our evil inclination by ourselves. We need role models, we need teachers, we need the Torah, we need instruction, and that's what the Torah is for. But we don't, have, we don't just take our faith and put it in someone else because we're incapable of saving ourselves. No, we believe existentially, metaphysically, that we can fix ourselves. Now we need some medicine, and the medicine is the Torah. And that's the major difference between Judaism and Christianity. It's not just, you know, was Jesus the Messiah? Did, he, did the Messiah come? Did not the Messiah come? Okay, that's a big divide between Christianity and Judaism, but that's not as fundamental. The fundamental distinction between Judaism and Christianity is, can you save yourself? Do you have within you the capacity to overcome your evil inclination? That's what Judaism believes. Christianity says you don't. You have corrupted, mankind has been corrupted, and therefore you need to place your faith in someone else. There are all sorts of ramifications of this debate, you should just know. But I want to get back into this. And this explains, one ramification is, who the Messiah is in each of these traditions. Who's the Mashiach in Christianity, and who's the Mashiach in Judaism? In Christianity, the Messiah is Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is perfect. He's born of immaculate conception, the church believes and still teaches today. According to Catholicism, even his mother Mary is born free of original sin. And he needs to be perfect because mankind is imperfect and therefore incapable of, uh, incapable of saving itself. And therefore it needs this perfect individual to come and save them or humanity. Whereas in Judaism, where's our Mashiach from? Can anybody tell me, I'll give you a minute to, to put it out there, from who is our Mashiach, the Jewish Messiah descendant? Anybody know? I'm just looking at some of the names here. Yeah, destroying worlds to rebuild, Daniel. That's what the measure says. Um, who, where, where is our Messiah come from? Does anybody know which family? Al Cohen, you're the man. David, now why is that significant? 
Who was David? Now, David was a great prophet, a beautiful poet. He left us the book of Tehillim, of Psalms, a warrior. But by no means is he depicted in the prophets as someone that's perfect. David has enemies. He has Jewish enemies like Saul. He has non-Jewish enemies like the Philistines. He struggles with sin. He had enormous challenges and obstacles in his life. But he taught us that you can, Amy, thank you, David, a little delayed. He taught us you can rise above your failures and your sins. And you can save yourself by doing what we call in Hebrew tshuva. Tshuva means to return, to come back to who you really are. Otherwise, you need a savior. Otherwise, you need someone who's perfect to save you. Now, for any of you superhero fans, and uh, Daniel Wallach is on, so he's a big superhero fan, and we talk about that sometimes. This is really the difference between Superman and Batman. And I, as those of you who read my book, um, I have this in there. I forgot what chapter this is. It's called Failing Forward. And I talk about this, and this is my own little idea because I love Superman, I love Batman even more. But if you think about it, what's the difference between Superman and Batman? Superman is this picture-perfect specimen with supernatural powers. He comes from Krypton. He comes from literally another um, world, another planet. And he comes and he's sent to Earth to save a race that is incapable of saving itself. I know I got to get in touch with that comic book rabbi, Daniel Wallach. I'm sorry. Now, that is Superman. Superman is like an almost Jesus-like figure. Right? He's perfect. Makes no mistakes. He's got that perfect little curl. Right? And he always says the right thing, does the right thing. And Batman, though, I love Batman. Batman's like a little of a mess. <laughs> Batman is a little like, like, like more like the Jewish Mashiach. He's got no supernatural powers. If you strip Batman and you take away, you know, the, the, the costume and da da da, he's not a superhero in a sense, but he's the Jewish superhero. You know why? Because he can't fly, he can't burn through steel with his eyes. But he's the Jewish superhero because he uses his human powers to make a difference. His intellect, his detective skills, his science and technology, the Batcave and all the gadgets. And he's also got a dark side. He's not walking around smiling all the time. He's got this childhood trauma with the bats that he eventually has to learn to turn into his greatest strength. And he does battle not only with the bad guys out there at Gotham, but also with his Yetzirah with his evil inclination, his own inner demons. He's mortal, and he teaches us the lesson that we may fail, but that doesn't mean that we're failures. We can overcome it, and we can do great things for the world, and we don't have to be this picture-perfect Superman. We can be Batman. We use our minds, we use our body, we use everything, the positive gifts that Hashem has given us, and we change life ourselves. And I think, I think, this is why we feel so awful when we fail at something. Christianity is a major source of Western thought. And I think on some level, somewhere in the back of our minds, we internalize this idea that we've become somehow internally flawed, fundamentally flawed. And, and that like deep down within us, we're just not good. And that idea of just being not good gets triggered when we fail at something. Outside, it could be a diet, it could be a relationship, it could be a test. We imagine at those moments that we haven't simply failed in the relationship, we haven't simply failed on that test or on the diet, we've failed, we're failures. You should just know that there's no such thing in Judaism. 
There's no Jewish source anywhere in the Torah or in rabbinic tradition of the human being being a failure or a sinner. People fail, people sin, but not being a failure or a sinner. In fact, on the holiest day of the year, on Yom Kippur, when we say the vidui and we come before God and we confess our sins and we take our fists and we go, Hashamnu, Bagadnu, Gazalnu, I did this wrong, I did that wrong, I did that. And we go through the whole alphabet, literally, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Hashamnu, Bagadnu, Gazalnu, Aleph through Tuf, A through Z. But we never refer to ourselves ever in that list as sinners or failures. We say we sin like this, we sin like that, I did this, I did that. Because you can't get better if you can't acknowledge where you've gone wrong. But we never say, God, I'm a total failure. I'm a sinner. There's no such thing. Now, Rachel is bringing up, I thought that feeling was Jewish guilt. I want you to know something, and I'm glad you brought it up, Rachel, and it sounds a little comical, you know, Jewish mothers and guilt. There is a place for shame and guilt in Judaism, but it's supposed to be part of the rehabilitative. It's supposed to help you. Because if you don't feel badly, if you don't blush, great book written, um, doesn't anyone blush anymore? If nothing causes you to blush, you're not embarrassed, then you're just gonna continue with negative behavior. You're gonna do the wrong thing and not feel badly about it. But the point of feeling badly about it, something is not to feel badly. The point of feeling badly is that it becomes an impetus for rehab, for restoration, for redemption, and for tshuva, for, for repentance. That's why we make our kids, we tell our kids if they do something wrong, not to make them feel crappy, excuse me, about themselves. But how else are you supposed to educate them that that's an inappropriate behavior and you need to try to do better? It's a very fine line between pointing out other people's flaws or focusing on your own flaws and feeling like, yeah, that was wrong, I need to do better in that, but I'm still good, as opposed to allowing that to make you feel like you're incapable of anything greater. And then, and then the only thing that's left to do, only thing therefore that's left to do is to just believe in someone else. And you lose faith in yourself. Thank you, Liesl, for appreciating this. Thank you. And by the way, this is the only way I can understand my favorite, favorite rabbinic figure in all of Talmud, and that is Rabbi Akiva. The reason I've got some scruff on my face, I trimmed a little for Yom Ma'ut yesterday. Um... But we know that Rabbi Akiva, during this period of Omer, we're counting actually last night and today is the 21st day of the Omer. If you didn't count, uh, you can do it right now. If you'd like to count it with me, let's do it. Without the blessing, only do the blessing at night. And if you've been doing it every night, let's do the count. Hayom echad ve'esrim yom, which means today is 1 and 20, 21 days. Shehim shlosha shavuot ba'omer that it is three weeks in the Omer, so it's three weeks today. And Rabbi Akiva lost his 24,000 students within this period of time. And perhaps more than any other rabbinic figure in the Talmudic period, he confronts more difficulties and obstacles and stress, and somehow he remains the eternal optimist. And the worst episode, he witnesses the death of all of his students, and a few lines later on the same page in the Talmud, it's, the Talmud relates that he went down to the south. Can you imagine how devastating it must have been? And he finds five new students and he starts all over again. And thank God he did because the world was desolate of Torah at that moment. And had Rabbi Akiva not repeated and gone back and said, I'm going to do more, I'm going to teach more, I'm going to find new students, 
We wouldn't be here today having a lunch and learn, learning Torah together. We wouldn't exist as a nation. And how did Rabbi Akiva do that? How did he do this? And when you take into account the reason for the death of his students, he should have been completely devastated. He felt like a total loser and failure. Anybody know why the students Rabbi Akiva died? It's 102. Thank you, Marissa. You remembered. I appreciate that. He says, The Talmud says that the students of Rabbi Akiva failed to show proper respect one to the next. Can you imagine how devastating that must have been for Rabbi Akiva? Does anyone know what Rabbi Akiva, his most favorite teaching was, Love your neighbors yourself. The rabbi who championed the biblical message, Love thy neighbor, loses all of his students because they didn't give proper respect to each other. He must have felt like a total failure. But he realized, probably, that he failed. But he didn't look upon himself as a failure. And therefore, he could get up and he could teach again. And you should just know that what I'm sharing with you is not pop, just pop psychology designed to make you feel a little better. And by the way, I think this is so important because all of us are working on projects professionally. All of us are working on relationships. I don't care if you're single and you don't, you're not in a relationship at all, or you're single and you're in a relationship, or you're married for 25 years in a relationship. We're all working on relationships. And sometimes they fail, and sometimes we fail. And sometimes projects at work fail. Sometimes we get fired, sometimes we fail exams. We try to go on the diet, we're trying to work out. We wake up the next day. Yesterday morning, I woke up, it was beautiful out. I went for a run, I ran a couple of miles, I felt like a million bucks. This morning I woke up, it was raining. And I was like, I should go out. If I was Rocky, I would go out. Remember when Rocky would run in the rain? And I didn't feel like Rocky this morning. I just felt tired and a little depleted. So I didn't. I don't know why I'm sharing that. <laughs> I just didn't because I wanted to not, I don't know, I just wasn't inspired. But the idea, and we can't always be inspired, is to get out there and to just push through it and do it again and again. And this isn't pop psychology to just make us feel better the next time you fail to, to brush off the dust and try over. It's actually considered one of the great principles of Jewish faith. The great Rambam, Maimonides, wrote that in order for the Mashiach, we've been talking about the Messiah, the Rambam says that in order for the Mashiach to come, the Jewish people have to engage in what's called tshuva, repentance. They have to return to the ways of God because, because the Messiah is really God pulling the Jewish people out of exile and, and bringing everyone back to Israel and living this idyllic kind of life. We have to demonstrate to God that we're worthy of the Messianic redemption. And so the Rambam says there's no Mashiach without tshuva, without repentance, without the Jewish people coming back in mass to God. Yet, the same Rambam, the same Maimonides wrote in his 13 Principles of Faith, that it is incumbent upon every Jew to be, believe in the coming of the Mashiach. Rabbi Soloveitchik asks the obvious question. How can the Rambam on one hand say, Maimonides say, that the only way for the Messiah to come is if we, the Jewish people, return to the ways of God? And elsewhere, the Rambam insists that all Jews must believe, he wrote this in his 13 Principles of Faith, that all Jews must believe in the coming of the Mashiach. Let's say the Jewish people do not return. Let's say we don't come back to God. 
how then can you believe in the coming of the Mashiach, which is dependent on the Jewish people returning to God? And Rav Salvechik answers, Aha! I don't know if he said that, but essentially he said you can't. The only way to believe in the coming of the Mashiach, which is dependent on the Jewish people returning, is to believe that the Jewish people will come back. To believe in the capacity of your own people, to believe in yourself, in your own ability, to live a life of nobility and purpose, to live a life of Torah and mitzvot. If you don't believe that you can do that, and if you don't believe your fellow Jew can live a life of Torah and mitzvot, then you can't really believe in the coming of the Mashiach. And therefore, the belief really in the coming of the Messiah is ultimately a belief in ourselves. It's a belief in our own capacity to live that kind of life. And if you doubt this, and if you doubt yourself, remember that thousands of years ago, God came to our ancestors and he revealed to them our Torah with hundreds of commandments. He told us to love our neighbors ourselves, we just mentioned, to give charity to the poor, to observe the Sabbath, to keep kosher. Why would God have given us all of these laws and all of these rules if he didn't believe us capable of observing them? God, why would God have given us the Torah in the first place? To set, up, to set us up for failure? God gave us these rules and laws because he obviously believed we were capable of fulfilling them, of carrying them out. God of Judaism commands us to observe his Torah, not only because he thinks that they're the best thing for us, for the best possible life, but because he believes we're capable of living up to them. And that's why we begin our day every morning by not only thanking God for giving us life, but for believing in us. The line we say first thing when we wake up in the morning, I thank you, O everlasting King. That you have restored to me my soul. It's the first thing that comes out of our mouth is thank you, God, for giving me life, for giving my soul back to me. But how do we end the prayer? Two words. Rabbah Great is your faithfulness. We don't say great is our faith in you, O God. We say how great is your faith in us. How do we know God has faith in us? Because he woke us up. If he woke us up, then he obviously believes that we're going to do something productive and worthwhile over the course of the day. That we're going to live up to the purpose and reason for our creation. We're not here incidentally or haphazardly. All of us are here for a very specific reason. And if God gets us up in the morning, it's only because he believes that we are capable of fulfilling that reason. And so when we fail, I see there's some comments or questions. We're going to come back to them in a minute. Let me just finish up. When we fail, and, and, and the goal of this was not to tell you that you're not going to fail. You're going to fail. Some of you more than others, <laughs> myself included. We pick up ourselves, we pick ourselves back up, and we brush off the dust, and we can start over. Because we know that failure is the way to grow. And we know also that although we've been unsuccessful at something, that doesn't mean we're failures. And although we sin, it doesn't mean we're sinners. We have a Sahara. We have an evil inclination, we have inner demons, we have struggles and we have challenges. We've got that inner negative voice. But we also have a Torah as a guide. 
And we've got role models like King David, and I like to say this in my book, like Batman, and others who take their mortal essence and do something amazing with it to inspire us to use our own abilities, not to take your faith and put it in someone else. Put your faith in yourself. Now you'll then ask, well, what do I need the Torah for? Because you need guidance. Every person needs guidance. Everyone needs a role model. Everyone needs a mentor and a teacher and a guidebook through life. That's the Torah. But the Torah is not there for you to simply take your faith and put it there or put it in God. I can't do this. It's up to you. That's a cop-out. We believe in ourselves. We need the Torah. We need role models to inspire us to use our own abilities, to overcome our obstacles and become the people that we were meant to be. And I will tell you years ago, this is what inspired me to take the bar a third time. And I finally passed. And look what good it did me now, who knows. But to succeed, we often have to fail. Remember that. But that never means that you're a failure. There's no such thing in Judaism. And that's not to sound politically correct. That's because failure is a necessary step for success. And there's no concept in Judaism of someone being a sinner or a failure. We sin, we fail, but that doesn't make us existentially, metaphysically failures or sinners. I thank you all for listening. Let me get some comments here. I see that uh, Jonathan Brody, you mentioned the Rocky story, Stallone was turned down by every studio for the screenplay. Oh my God. I really appreciate, Jonathan, that example. There's so many unbelievable examples. Um, I listened to uh, Sylvester Stallone. Um, he went from place to place to sell his Rockies, um, you know, and nobody liked them. And then finally one place said they would do it, but they didn't want him to be the actor. And he said, sorry, I'm the main actor. And he just kept pushing through. It's actually a really great story. You can Google it. Uh, the interview with Sylvester Stallone. Uh, Jeff Koblenz is bringing up Muhammad Ali. Yeah, he was an unbelievable personality. Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. All right, All right. and Jeff even gave us the link that you can watch Muhammad Ali, an extraordinarily um, inspirational character. There's just so many. I gave you the example of my friend David Keene. Um, you know, a little more of a, I don't wanna say normal example, of someone who just pushed through his difficulty. But I find these stories so inspirational and motivational. Um, because there's no such thing as someone for whom everything just came easily and uh, they, they just sort of glided. And that's why the Abraham Lincoln and the Rabbi Akiva, we tend to focus, when we talk about Abraham Lincoln, we talk about all of the great speeches he gave and uh, Gettysburg Address and, and how he, he stood for, you know, being anti-slavery and the North and the South and how he held the country together. They're, it's all true. But how did he become that person, right? How did he become that person? I mean, to go back to the Rocky thing, and that's the theme of all the Rockies. It's not if you win, it's how many punches can you take and keep getting back up. That's what Rocky keeps telling his son again and again. That's what life's about. How many punches can you take and keep get, getting back up? And that was the godless of Rocky. Sylvester Stallone should live and be well, <laughs> okay? Any other comments or questions? Um, we got here beautiful words and inspiring. I appreciate that, Anna. Um, I want to wish all of you a, um, I hope this gives you a little motivation to keep trying and gives you the philosophical outlook on Judaism. 
on, on what it really means to be a Jew. It means that we've got a part of us that brings us down, but we can overcome that. And we can do that ourselves with some guidance, with some Torah, with some good friends and mentors and teachers. Very, very important to have the right friends and to have the right mentors and that you're following some kind of system that has some proven rate of success. I would call that the Torah. <laughs> it's been doing pretty well, I will say that. I wanna thank you guys for all participating and listening. Uh, we are gonna continue tomorrow for Lunch and Learn. I love our Lunch and Learns on Fridays because I get to dig into the Parsha of the week, which is really interesting this week. It's always interesting, particularly uh, this coming Shabbat. We'll meet back here at 1230. Wanna mention also that tomorrow morning, Yosef Wilds, my son will be doing his uh, Erev Shabbat early morning meditation. Early morning during Corona is 8.45 a.m. Uh, we did that so that people could start their work. Um, he does it for about 15, 20 minutes at 18, uh, at 8.45 tomorrow morning. And then um, I think Shuki then teaches a class at 10, uh, Hasidic Insights into the Parsha. And then Allison is doing her amazing class at 10.30 and then Lunch at Learn um, at 12.30. I want to mention also that live, Facebook Live, we're going to be coming to you with Chazen Benny Amar. Chazen Benny Amar is going to be doing a, a concert at 6.30 tomorrow, Friday afternoon, um, followed then by Kabbalat Shabbat. Uh, he is awesome, and we were so happy we were able to get him back. We haven't heard him for quite a while, those of you who know our amazing Chazen at MJE. And then Saturday night, I would say at approximately 8.45, 8.50, we're gonna do, we're gonna come on for Havdalah, uh, Yosef and myself for Havdalah again, be a beautiful Havdalah. So I thank you guys for listening. Have a wonderful and awesome day and fail forward. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Wilds Cast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do, it helps others discover the show. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us today.